I don't know about you, but I like uh, when I ever sometimes will go over to somebody's house and they'll have family photos or pictures on the wall. I'm one of those that even if I don't know who they are, I just, I like looking at pictures. You know, I'll gravitate towards those photos and look at those things. And now don't ask me over to your house and show me your vacation pictures and uh, but I do like looking at photos and pictures, and with the digital uh, age, uh, photo albums and those type of things are kind of a rarity. You know, this is our, this is our photo album, isn't it? And that's not always a good thing, because uh, it's not a good way to archive it. But uh, in the book of John, John chapter 19 that we're coming to this morning, is this is kind of, in chapter 19 is a I uh, called it kind of a set of pictures that John the Apostle gives us uh, regarding a, uh, a time, probably the most momentous beginning time of history besides the resurrection, that in the day of, uh, a day in the life of Jesus, and that's the title of this morning's message, A Day in the Life of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at how John presents aspects regarding the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Now, normally, we would hear sermons on the cross or the crucifixion and those type of things before Easter during the season preceding up to that. Uh, I always thought it'd be a good idea to do a sermon series called Christmas in July because sometimes when something is taken out of its familiarity, we tend to pay more attention to it. And so talking about the birth of Christ and those things in July, we might pay more attention because we get kind of used to the seasonal aspect. So, but, you know, the, the cross is any time. I mean, that's, that's all the time you can look at what God's Word says that. But we want to walk and notice some things here that John presents and just kind of as a way to wrap our heads around it a little bit, uh, kind of looking at this in a series of pictures that will make and then make some application on some things that uh, John presents to us. In John 19.35, of course, we know that John is the writer, but in the events that occur, that are recorded, the picture album, if you will, that is what I call it, we see that John is the eyewitness. In John 19.35, it says, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. So John is uh, telling us that, look, I'm an eyewitness to the things that are written here in John chapter 19. This isn't firsthand information. I mean, Peter couldn't necessarily say that because Peter, we know, at the rest of Jesus, fled. Uh, many of the disciples hid out of fear. Other gospel writers like uh, Mark wasn't there, but Mark was a protege of Peter, so his account of the life of Christ came uh, through the life of Peter. Uh, Luke, a uh, companion of the Apostle Paul, we know that his account came from interviews of eyewitness uh, sources, but John is saying here in verse 35 that this testimony is true, that I bear witness that I'm telling you the truth. I bear witness to the events that take place here I saw it firsthand. I am an eyewitness. This is eyewitness news here that we're going to look at in chapter 19. Now, remember the, the uh, purpose in John. 
He tells us the purpose in John in chapter 20, verse 31, of why he's written the book that we call the Gospel according to John. And as a reminder, we haven't read that in a few weeks, but John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, Messiah, Hebrew, Christ, the Greek. But Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So it isn't just believing in a sense of an intellectual acceptance, but it's that that I'm believing, that I'm believing in a transformative way that through my belief, through my trust in Jesus, that I may have the life of Christ that is available to Him. So this morning we're going to look in John 19 and go through these. Uh, there's probably several more little pictures or snapshots, if you will, in chapter 19. But for time's sake, uh, believe it or not, I did edit several out. So even though it seems like a lot, we're not going to spend a lot of time on each one. But we want to walk through these in chapter 19, these pictures, these snapshots. And again, it's not to just give a history lesson, but it's to, again, connect with the price and what Christ did on our behalf, on my behalf, the severity, the nature of it, you know, what sometimes we, we, we tend to forget. And so by walking through a, a single photo album, if you will, we, I hope, that are strengthened in our trust in Christ. So notice with me some of these pictures. And in your listener's guide that was in your, your bulletin, that's just a tool for you to be more engaged and get more out of uh, this morning's message. I encourage you to take the little blue sheet out. You can follow along. And uh, with your Bible, be engaged and uh, get more out of the message and uh, keep your mind focused is what I found is helpful. Number one, the first picture that we see that John presents is the picture of flogging. In John 19.1, it says that Pilate took Jesus. Now, Pilate is the Roman governor. We'll talk more about him. But Pilate took Jesus and scourged him or flogged him or beat him, had him beaten. Pilate didn't do it, but he had individuals that took him and whipped him and beat him. And one of the tools of the trade that they used was something, a type of whip uh, was like uh, was done with a cat of what they call cat of nine tails that had pieces of bone tied to the leather so that when the strap was uh, struck on the back of the individual that as the small bone fragments would hit the back of the skin that it would dig in the skin as it was pulled out it would rip pieces of flesh uh, in the beating and that was that was what was done the one who was being flogged was given 39 lashes usually 40 they said would kill them and uh, it would cause great severity and bleeding trauma to the body. Normally when a person was flogged, uh, they weren't necessarily crucified. And uh, so uh, Pilate, perhaps thinking that, you know, Pilate, as we'll mention a little bit, Pilate was the consummate political figure. He really, uh, you remember he, at one point, he kind of washed his hands. I mean, Pilate didn't really have any skin in the game. The only skin he was interested in was his own. He was only interested in protecting his own skin. And if you know why there was such an emphasis on keeping things quiet 
there in uh, Israel or in Palestine was because the Romans really didn't care if you worshipped a frog, a tree, whatever, as long as you did a few things. One, as long as you kept the peace, you didn't cause them to have to send troops into the territory and deal with your problems or your riot, and the money and the taxes kept flowing. As long as that was done, uh, everything was good. And so Pilate, in order to maintain his, maintain his cushy government job, wanted to make sure that things were kept at peace. And so he really just kind of, as we'll see here, just dealt with things in a, in a purely pragmatic, political manner uh, that was whatever was expedient. And so the thinking was that maybe, because remember the Jews or the religious, some of the religious Jews, not every Jew, but the ones that were in kind of the, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, many of them were wanting Jesus not only uh, beaten, but really ultimately they were wanting Jesus crucified. Or they wanted him killed. They wanted him to uh, be uh, uh, the subject of capital punishment because they said that he had committed blasphemy against God. And so perhaps Pilate thought, we don't need to go that far. Maybe if, I'm, if I just take him out and have him beaten severely within inches of his life, That'll satisfy things, and things will keep quiet. Well, didn't quite do that. Notice the second picture that is given here in chapter 19 is in verses 2 and 3, and that is the picture of the taunting, the taunting of the soldiers. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. It was a taunting. It was a mocking. It was, uh, it, it, was a, it was making fun and making light and ridicule. In chapter 19, verse 3, in the uh, uh, Christian Standard Bible version, the CSB gives a sense uh, in verse 3 of the CSB, says, and they kept coming up to him. This wasn't just a one-time thing they did this. This was a continual mocking and taunting and ridicule uh, that they were doing again and again to Jesus. And John remembers, remembers here was the one that John had given his life to and to see him put in this setting, not only of being beaten and bloodied, but to see the way that they were mocking and making fun uh, of Jesus. And John remembers that. He's an eyewitness that's embedded and baked into his memory bank. Notice the third picture is we see Jesus before Pilate and the crowd to some degree. In verses 4 through 5, Pilate then went out again and said to them, to the crowd, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Now, if you compare the gospel accounts, there are, uh, I think some people said that he pronounced uh, Jesus' innocence something like seven different times when you compare the four gospels at different ways that they recorded it. So Pilate recognized that Jesus was an innocent man, that this was a bogus charge against him. But remember, Pilate, he was a political guy. He didn't want to get in the middle of this religious squabble and this problem. He just wanted to deal with it as effectively as he could. 
and uh, get it out of his hair. He, he, he said, look, I don't find any fault with him. And you can almost say, look, we've beaten him half to death. Can you just, is, can we just, not enough, guys? I mean, but it says then Jesus, verse 5, then Jesus came out and he had that crown of thorns and that purple robe that the soldiers had put on him and that taunting mockery. And you could just, again, I know there's movies and all these things that kind of get in our heads of pictures, but I, I don't think any movie uh, could totally portray the agony of what Christ is bearing. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. And it's kind of like, he's not saying, Hey, look at this great man. He's saying, Look, he's just a man. You, you, this, I mean, this is what you're all riled up about? It's more of kind of a, like, like, really? This is what we're doing? I mean, it was kind of that exasperation. Now, Pilate, as a Roman governor, had the power of life and death. I mean, he could, by his own will, he had the power to sentence somebody to death, or he had the power to release them. He was the chief authority, if you will, regarding civil matters as an extension of Rome. Pilate, as, he, as it says, he said, I have found no fault with him. Now something interesting that one of the Matthew, the gospel writer of Matthew, tells of this, this account gives us some interesting information that we don't see in John, that even Pilate's wife came to Pilate because she had a dream. Look at Matthew 27, 18 through 19. Some of you may have never seen this before. For he knew, Pilate, for Pilate knew that they had handed him over because of envy. He knew, he knew their motives. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. This is what his wife is saying. Guys, you better listen to your wife. He said, she said, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, some of you have never seen that verse before. Pilate knew that this was wrong, but he didn't release him because, again, he did not want, he didn't want to pay the price. He didn't want to pay the cost. See, the cost would have been how it would have affected him. He would have had to give up some personal capital, if you will, because if he, he knew that if he displeased this large religious segment, then he would be out of good graces. And again, Pilate is a political animal. He's just trying to survive and maintain his political life and his cushy um, accommodations and salary and whatnot. And the price... He wasn't willing to pay the price to do the courageous and the right thing regarding the innocent man, Jesus. You know, it's easy to be hard on Pilate, but sometimes we have to be honest that we're a lot like Pilate because sometimes we're not willing to pay the cost for standing up for Jesus, are we? What's it going to cost me in my job? What's it going to cost me in my school? What are my neighbors, my friends going to think? What are, what's my reputation going to be like? We oftentimes can be a little hard-pressed on 
Mr. Pilate when we struggle with much of the same weakness. Uh, but notice also we see in this same thing, we see Jesus and Pilate alone one-on-one. There's the crowd. But then we see a, a, a one-on-one dialogue, verse 10. And then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? In other words, why are you not answering me? Do you not know, this is Pilate, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? I mean, do you know who I am? And it, you know, ever watch this video and some public official get in trouble and the worst thing they can do is say, do you know who I am? You know, they got stopped for a try and they get, and it's like, bad, don't do that. Well, he's, He's saying, look, don't you know who I am? But look at what Jesus said. In this, this, this one-on-one, Jesus did answer him, verse 11. And Jesus said, you, Mr. Pilate, could have no power at all against me unless, say unless, unless it had been given to you from above. Mr. Pilate, you think you're all-powerful? You think you have supreme power? You really have no power. Because you only have what we would, he would say, my Father in heaven, God, has allowed you to have. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, here he is, his back torn open through the beating. His back is ripped open, wearing a bloody robe. The crowd's against him. The entire Roman government is behind Pilate. Pilate says, why don't you answer me? And Jesus looks him right in the eye. And says, you have no power. Only God has power. And he, he has brought me here to you. Not you and your political scheming. God, only one has brought me power. That's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And when I read about that, that one-on-one confrontation, it's a reminder that no one, no entity, nothing has power in this world ultimately except that which God has allowed and granted them to have. Nobody has power in this world except God. No government, no person, no authority, only God. God is sovereign. God is in control of all things, and even in this darkest hour from human perspective, there is not one aspect of this arrest and the trial and everything that happens that God, the Father, is not in absolute sovereign control over. Pilate is a mere puppet in the processes and providence of God. Notice the fourth picture. And we see Jesus carrying his cross. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, your version may say Aramaic, uh, but it's really Aramaic should, is the correct, because Golgotha is a transliteration of the Aramaic. Golgotha, Latin, is where uh, in the Latin Vulgate, if you know what that is, uh, Latin version of the New Testament, that's where we get the word Calvary uh, in the Latin. But in the uh, Aramaic is the word Golgotha, verse 18, the place of the skull, verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, when we think of 
Jesus carrying this cross, really more of the uh, modern adaptations of the life of Jesus have a little more accuracy because if you remember in many of the more modern adaptations, movies or whatever, they have Jesus just carrying, it's a beam across his back. Uh, the old pictures, if you even know this name, probably two of you will know the name Arthur Blessed. Uh, how many of you know that name? All right, maybe three, four, okay. Well, Arthur Blessed, uh, I think he's still alive, famous evangelist that was known for literally traveling around the world and what he was known for, he would walk thousands of miles and he carried a cross, uh, a full beam cross. Now it had a little wheel on the back of it. Jesus didn't have a little wheel on the back, you know, but he did that as a point of sharing the gospel. Obviously you see a guy on I-4 walking, you know, he's carrying the cross, that kind of gets your attention, right? And, uh, but anyway, we'll leave Mr. Blessed aside, but that was not it was more of a cross beam, and this cross beam that was, that, that was being weighed down on his uh, strap to the prisoner's back weighed anywhere from 100 or 150 pounds. Imagine a couple of, uh, it's like a couple of sacks of cement. Now remember, the man Jesus is beaten almost and bloody to the point of losing uh, blood and, and the, the beating and then having to carry this beam of, of wood and uh, suffering the flogging and everything that is going on. Now, it's interesting, John doesn't tell this, but Matthew, that's where again, comparing kind of like four eyewitnesses, they all give a different, I mean, same event, but they see different pictures, different things. It's kind of like if there was an accident here on Sleepy Hill Road and some of you were out there witnessing, and they took witnesses' statements, guess what? If there was 10 people that looked at it, they might have 10 different versions. Now, you'd all be in agreement that the Ford hit the Pinto or whatever it is, right? Uh, Pinto, boy, that, that's, a, that's a blast from the past, isn't it? <laughs> I never owned one. My brother did. But, uh, but, but you would agree with the, the core thing but you would say, well, the guy was wearing a blue shirt. Well, it wasn't a guy at all. It was a woman driving. I mean, you'd have aspects where you would see different things. Um, and so that's kind of why you've got to compare the Gospels. But interesting, in Matthew account in the New Living Transversion, Translation, uh, Matthew 27, 32, it tells us that along the way, as Jesus was carrying this, the cross or this partial beam of the wood that would be put up on the cross... Uh, they came across a man named Simon who was from Serene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. I don't know, it's because Jesus was such, so near death that even, you know, again, they're trying to speed this thing along. Remember, the Romans were trying to accommodate the Jewish authorities by making sure that Jesus was killed and buried before sundown so they could celebrate the Passover. That's nice, isn't it? So, uh, so maybe they were, because of Jesus' physical uh, situation, they were trying to move it along. And so Matthew tells us, and boy, I don't know who this Simon is. We'll probably meet him someday in heaven. But boy, what a, what a testimony he would have. Simon from Cyrene. And uh, I think some historical accounts, because of Cyrene, would tell us that he would be more of an African descent individual in his, um, in his heritage. But what a testimony. But notice the fifth picture. 
Verse 18, and it's just straightforward, is Jesus is crucified. Verse 18, here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Again, this is eyewitness detail, John's accounting of the events that took place here. Now, crucifixion, we obviously associated with Romans, but the Romans did not invent crucifixion. It was actually done uh, centuries earlier by a Semitic group called Phoenicians. Phoenicia was a country, their capital was Tyre, T-Y-R-E, um, and it would be in modern-day Lebanon, uh, 64 years before the birth of Christ. Alexander the Great, uh, in his conquering, um, uh, conquered, and Phoenicia was no more. It was under Alexander the Great as the conqueror. And uh, they, they uh, invented the crucifixion, but the Romans and the Egyptians, especially the Romans used it very effectively as a tool because remember, as Rome would come in and colonize various areas and entities, one of the things, again, the Romans, again, wanted, they wanted you to behave yourself, don't cause them any trouble, and pay those taxes to Rome. That's, that's kind of an oversimplification, but that's really all they cared about. And so when you got out of line, the cross, the crucifix, or the the, the capital punishment became a very effective way to dealing with people who were troublemakers. Because the crucifixion was such a bloodied, horrible thing of being nailed upon this this, uh, edifice of, of wood, this cross beam of wood... But the Romans would put it outside the city, and it was quite common as you would enter into the city, you might would see off to the side bodies rotting and decaying and birds that have uh, eaten the corpses. And I mean, and it would have the judgment, the penalty written on the cross. And you'd be like, okay, I'm not stealing nothing. Right? It would have, it's in some ways, in some countries, I mean, even I've noticed, uh, you know, there were times in Iran and in the Taliban and Afghanistan where they would take somebody that was a traitor or somebody that committed crimes against Islam, and they would display their beaten bodies upside down, hoist them up by a crane and hang them off a bridge or in the middle of the town square dead and let their body as a corpse just rot there. And I tell you... <laughs> That would have a severe psychological effect that you better not get out of line because just like that guy, that could be you. So it was, you could see it was a very effective way for keeping people to behave, to say it plainly. But it says they crucified him. And I know that, again, a lot of times you've probably read things, but let me, just, let me just remind us about the severity of this crucifixion of Jesus. What happened at the cross? The executioner would lay the cross beam behind the victim, bring him down quickly to the ground. In other words, the, the uh, vertical beam would already, or the uh, part of the vertical beam and the, uh, or the, the hole for the, uh, the crucifix and so that he would be hoisted and brought down 
uh, where he'd, it would be fitted, and once it was fitted, remember he's, he's laying up there, they would nail him and, and secure him there, and then when that would jerk and hit the ground, the whole body would shift and body and flesh would be torn, and the victim fell, when the victim fell, the beam would be fitted under the back of his neck, the executioner would wear a leather apron with pockets that he would have the nails in there, and he would place two square five-inch nails between his teeth and a hammer in his hand, and he would kneel beside, first beside the right arm of the one who was to be crucified. His knee would rest on the inside of the elbow, and he would hold the forearm flat on the board, and the executioner would feel for the hollow spot between the bones and the wrist. A nail would be placed there and driven through the hand into the crossbeam with a sharp blow with those nails. He would do the left hand in the same way. The two soldiers would grab each side of the crossbeam, and as the executioner motioned, they would lift it up. And when the crossbeam was set firmly, the executioner would reach up and set the board which listed the crime of the criminal. Then he would kneel before the cross and take the feet of the criminal, nailing the right foot over the left foot. And the Romans made kind of an art of this thing. They were professionals at this thing, and they could do it quite quickly in positioning the feet so that the victim would endure the greatest torture while on the cross. Jesus would have then become aware of immediately the pain, his shoulder, arms, muscles will begin to cramp severely. His pectoral muscles would constrict, preventing him from breathing out. One thing that was very common, and they would see it as a kind of a sign of mercy, that was common and did not happen to Jesus, and it was because it was prophesied that none of his bones would be broken. One of the common things that they would do, because one of the things that the person on the cross had to keep kind of, because of the severity and the, the, the compression that was happening on their lungs, they would constantly be trying to lift their, their body up uh, in such a way so that they could breathe. So one of the things that they would do to expedite their death is break their legs. And that way they would have no ability to press up and they basically would suffocate to death. Number six, another picture John gives us. And it's interesting what he focuses on. It's, and it's this sign. This sign. You know, you'd think you talk about the blood, the nails. I mean, but the sign he gives attention to. Verse 19. Now, Pilate, it's interesting, Pilate. I don't know how much he got involved in these kind of things. But in this case, the Bible says Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now again, usually the sign said what they were guilty of. Remember the scripture? Well, we'll read it later. I'll get ahead of myself, get excited. I'll read it later. It wasn't Jesus the traitor, Jesus the blasphemer, it was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 20, then many of the Jews read this title, 
For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, outside the city. And the sign was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews. Write, I am the king of the Jews. Like it was some mocking pronouncement. And I like that Peter, I mean Pilate, verse 22, said, Look, what I've written, I've written. Now, I don't know what's going on in Pilate, but, it's, but you know, the Jews, you know, you've heard of spin doctors? You know, every time there's a presidential debate, they have a room afterwards where all the, the lackeys of the political candidates meet and talk to reporters, and they call that the spin room. That means they, if the candidate said something really stupid or made a mistake, the spin doctor, doctors in there, they want to they turn it and say, oh, he, he didn't mean he was going to raise taxes. He meant blah, 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 whatever. They, they want to they spin it to what's going to benefit because they know he really flubbed it, right? Well, the Jews said, look, they want to spin it differently than what Pilate wrote. But for whatever reasons in God's providence, I don't know what kind of impression. There's some interesting things that are not necessarily scriptural, some traditions of, of accounts uh, of Pilate who, I mean, there's some outside sources. I don't know the weight of them. Where after the resurrection, there's accounts that people wrote that Pilate encountered the resurrected Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem. Wouldn't that freak you out, right? Huh? Now, again, that's not in the, it's not even in the map, so don't be looking for it, all right? That's in outside sources, all right? But it's interesting, but he says in verse 22, look, what I've written stays. I'm not changing it. The sign was impressive because God in his providence, working through an unbeliever like Pilate, wanted it to be seen several things. First of all, what I, what I see in this sign is that there's no circumstance that can diminish the power of who Jesus is. Even in the defeat, in the world sense, in the darkest moment, it's proclaimed there on that sign, the King is written in the name of Jesus. Now, and again, the natural you think, well, that doesn't look like much of a king. But in God's eyes, Jesus is the king. No circumstance can diminish the power of Jesus' true identity. Also, the sign tells us that the world can clearly see who Jesus is. It's not coincidence. It's written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. The languages of that day. Okay, the languages of that day that were written in, that everybody, that the, the message of who Jesus is was clearly, and then that, in that sign, established that all would know who Jesus is. And as I said about them trying to spin the truth, some people will try to change the truth about Jesus, but you can't change who Jesus is, and Pilate says, it is what it is, and it is what I've written. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, whether he said that to goad, remember, he, he knew that they were doing this out of envy. I don't think he had a real love, you know, love for these people, because he knew that this was a trumped-up charge, this was bogus, and so maybe he did it just to annoy them. Whatever his motive is, God in his providence put it there as a sign 
to communicate something wonderful and great. Number seven, snapshot picture of the soldiers casting his clothing, gambling on his casting lots for his clothing. Verse 24 of chapter 19, they said, therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Now John inserts that the scripture might be fulfilled. Do you realize that the scripture prophesied details concerning the death of Jesus that in Psalm 22:18 and John quotes it there but in Psalm 22:18 which is a messianic psalm that prophesies ahead aspects of the crucifixion of Christ in Psalm 22:18 it says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots that was prophesied old testament and here I don't think the soldiers are like, hey, how can we fulfill Scripture? I don't think, obviously, that's not going on there, right? But God, God, God knows. Remember, God is sovereign. He, he knows what's going on. Now, I don't know this, so don't... But it's interesting. I always thought uh, these garments... I know we have a mindset of Jesus, but why were they gambling? Why did they not want the garment? These aren't what they dressed him in with that bloody robe and the, and the crown. These are what he had on upon his arrest. It might suggest to us that, you know what? Jesus had some nice clothes. Why would they want them? Why would it be of any value? Now, you're looking at me like a, you know, cow in front of a new gate, as they would say. Think about it. Why would they want them? Why would they not want them torn? Could it be that it was of value? Could it be of the clothing and the, the, the type of thing that was of some value? But uh, I don't think they were worried about keeping souvenirs over some renegade Jewish madman, as they would probably think of it. Just a thought, just a thought. Don't go out and start a church over it, but just a thought. Number eight. I see another fulfilled scripture and a picture that John gives us I think John's wanting to connect the dots of some of these fulfilled scriptures. The drinking of sour wine or vinegar. Uh, Verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, knowing here he is near death, and listen to his, uh, John gives us a bit of what's happening in the thinking process revealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said consciously, I thirst. Well, what's the big deal? Well, in Psalm 22, 15, prophetically looking ahead, prophesying of the death of Messiah, Psalm 22, 15 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death again, uh, Scott. People look at that that psalm as a as a uh, Psalm 22 as a messianic psalm, just like we read the other verse from Psalm 22. And then in verse 29 of John 19, they gave him a vessel full of sour wine. Your version, I think the King James says they gave him gall. That's just a word for vinegar. It's a soured type wine mixed with hyssop. Here's what it is. It's a narc- In that day, they would use that mixture as a narcotic to sedate or ease the suffering 
So you can say in one sense, somebody kind of felt maybe a little sorry and thought they would maybe give him a drug to kind of ease the pain and the suffering of what's going on. And verse uh, 29 says they attempted to do this, to give him this sour wine. Again, I think like the casting of lots and even some obscure thing, how somebody would say, well, Jesus just orchestrated this whole thing. Well, how could he orchestrate his own crucifixion, right? Force them to arrest him, force him to force them to put him on the cross, force him at the near death to make the arrangement that they do all these little things to fulfill Scripture, to keep the scam going. No. This is all done to... And again, John is intentional in putting these little snapshots and these connections here over what's happening here. And then the picture number nine is really straightforward. Verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. One version or one uh, gospel writer said he said it with a loud voice. It is finished. Probably took every muscle to, to extend and say that with a loud voice took the, literally the last breath that Jesus spoke. Now, when you hear Jesus say, it is finished, notice a couple of things here, and most of you are familiar with this, but it's good to remind us, that the Greek word that is used for finished, it is finished, is the Greek word, and this is just the transliteration of it, tetelestai, that's the, how you would say it in, in the Greek, tetelestai, and that means that it is the end of something. It is the completion of something. It means, for example, that they have found in archaeological digs, they have found uh, ancient uh, bills and documents and things and records, and they have found where the stamp or imprint of tetelestai was put upon the bill to signify meant paid in full. So when Jesus said it is finished, Tetelestai, it means I've finished. The debt is paid in full. I've accomplished the goal. I've crossed the finish line. It is finished. I always wonder, as a carpenter, you know, he was a son of a carpenter. His stepfather, Joseph, was a carpenter. And as the oldest son, he would have uh, followed in that trade. I wonder how many times the boy Jesus, the young man Jesus, when he finished that chair, that table, said, Dad, Tetelestai! I'm done. I'm finished. I don't know. Again, don't go well, start a church over and I'm just speculating, all right? He said it is finished. So why do we want to keep adding and trying to finish what Jesus said is finished? The last picture. John has one more picture that I'll include. And that's the spear in his side. In verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That was fulfillment of Scripture that said not one bone would be broken. Verse 34, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen, and again has testified, that this is true. John says, look, I saw this happen. 
They put a spear in his heart that the sack that's around the heart that is filled with water uh, upon death, it's evidence of death, and blood and water came out, that blood, which had already separated into the plasma and the hemoglobin, came pouring out together, and that only happens when the circulation has stopped and death has occurred. By them doing this, it said and showed that he was indeed dead. He wasn't fainted. He wasn't swooning in a, in a, in a catatonic state. He was dead. But also the piercing of the heart and the muscle and the blood reminds us that Jesus' death, in another way, he died of a broken heart. He died because of sin. This was never God's plan. I mean, in the sense that, that, that His only begotten Son would, would have to give of His life. That was not part of the original in the sense that God wanted uh, the original Adam and Eve to walk in obedience. But it was a part of the foundation because the Bible says in a, in a, in a way that's a little bit, you know, contradictory in Revelation about the land that was slain before the foundation of the world. You see, God is never... God never learns anything. God never catches off guard. He, never, he always, what, what may seem to us as fulfillment and God's actions against a sinful action or whatever, in, a, in one way that's quite mysterious to us because we're not God, God has everything under His control and His plan. And the wise, many of the wise will, will ask, uh, maybe we'll go into eternity and in getting our answer, or maybe... When we behold Jesus, the wise won't matter as much as they do right now. But you know, the cross in the first century, you would not have gone to the uh, flea market and bought a little necklace with a cross and walked around wearing it. To somebody from the first century that perhaps would show up at our doors today, and some of you might have a cross around your neck, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, they would think, wow, that's kind of weird. Because in their mind, it would be like us today. It was, the cross was a symbol of death. The cross was a symbol of capital punishment. It would be quite weird if you walked through these doors and I said, oh, that's a beautiful little piece of jewelry. Yeah, yeah, my daughter bought that for me. What, what is it? I can't really, it looks like a chair with, with some kind of electrodes around it. And uh, What is that? Oh, it's an electric chair. Isn't that cute? You're missing my point. It's not about, that's what the cross symbolized. It was a symbol of death, of capital punishment. But... Thankfully, because of the revelation that God gave the Apostle Paul and the Apostles, that what became an instrument of death to us is a picture of life. Is a picture of life. You see, the cross today, we don't see death, and we do see the death and the penalty that Jesus paid, but we see what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Amen. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, 
you who were once far off have been brought near, brought close by the blood of Christ. What do you picture when you look at the cross on the back of your handout? Let me give you several things that would suggest some things that as we picture the cross, number one, how does this awe-inspiring account and story of the death of Christ that we can kind of be so familiar with, we forget to say, how, how does this connect with me? What, how do I, what do I picture when I look at the cross? Certainly, I look at the, the great sacrifice that Jesus paid. You wonder, nobody loves me? Look at the cross and see the price that God paid to show His love for you. A great sacrifice. But let me suggest several things here real quick. Is number one, picture victory. I want you, when we look at the cross, picture victory over sin and temptation. You should see in the cross, victory over sin and temptation. These scriptures are in your outline. They're not on the screen. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old life died with Christ on the cross so that our sinful selves would have no power over us and that we would not be slaves to sin. That's what the cross did. Galatians 5.24 from the Living Bible, those who belong to Christ have nailed their natural evil desires to His cross and have crucified or let them die there. In the cross, we see a picture of victory over sin and temptation. Secondly, we see a picture of God's power as a part of our everyday life. 1 Corinthians 1.18, I read it earlier, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, the us, to the us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of the finished work of Jesus. See, sanctification is the application of the finished work of Jesus that is, being, that is separating us continually. We are separated from sin. We are being separated from sin. And one day we will be totally free and separated from sin in glorious new bodies in heaven. But in this process of sanctification, it is the application of the finished work of Jesus that is being brought out in our daily lives, that it all flows through, not my good deeds, not my good efforts, not me being more religious. No, it all flows out of what Jesus did, of what Jesus did. Thirdly, picture yourself as a person because of the cross of incredible faith. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I, <laughs> I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You need to see in the cross yourself as a person of incredible faith, not because of your faith, but because of Christ living in you. Paul said in Galatians 3.1, the living Bible, O foolish Galatians, what magician has hypnotized you and cast an evil spell upon you? For you used to see the meaning of Jesus' death as clearly as though I had waved a placard before you with a picture on it of Christ dying on the cross. See, we lose the picture that Jesus Christ Paid it all. We, get, we lose the picture that my faith is anchored in Jesus. It isn't faith in faith. It's faith anchored in Christ. 
What is my hope for heaven? What is my hope to overcome the devil, the enemy of the flesh, all the stuff? What is, what is my hope? What is my, what is my anchor? It is that Jesus Christ defeated and won the victory on the cross. And because of that, I can be a person of incredible faith in Christ. Fourthly, when you picture the cross, picture a change in what is important to you. Uh, picture a change or transformation. Paul said in Galatians 6.14 in the Living Bible, As for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross. Listen, it wasn't just a guy dying on two beams of wood. Hundreds of thousands probably died in the course of history. Crucified. It was that man. It was that man that Pilate said, little did he know, behold the man. Yeah, you, you, you're right, buddy. Behold the man. Because it's that man that there's one name under heaven by which we can be saved. And because of that cross, Paul says, my interest in all the attractive things of the world was killed long ago. And the world's interest in me is also long dead. Why? Because I got more religion? No, because of the cross. And the last picture that you can picture for yourself and myself is picture yourself as forgiven and pure in God's sight. Some of you don't believe that. You theologically get it up here, but you really don't believe that. You don't believe that God sees you through Christ as forgiven and pure in His sight. The reason I know some of you don't believe that is because I listen to some of your prayer requests. And some of you are still trying to get your act together to assure that God really loves you. The basis of God's love for you is the love of Christ. And Colossians 3.3 3 says that my life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. When God looks at my life, He sees me wrapped up in Jesus, and He's well pleased in Jesus, so therefore He sees me in Christ, pure in Christ. I can't improve on that. I would like to tell you, being here in church... Gave you some, some bonus points. It didn't do that. It didn't do anything. You can't do anything. As a born-again believer, all you can do, as Paul said, boast in nothing but what Jesus has done. The scripture that I'll close with, and Melissa, if you could go ahead and come. But I love Colossians 2, 13 through 14. That'll be on the screen. Paul said, And when you were in when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with Christ and forgave us all of our trespasses, all of our sins. Look at verse 14. Remember I said that during the crucifixion, when a person was crucified, their crime was put on the cross. 
Well, it says that Jesus, verse 14, that He erased the certificate of debt. He erased the criminal complaint that was against us. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. That's the law that was against us and opposed to us. The certificate of the crime that had my name on it, that had your name on it, was nailed to the cross of Christ. And he said, Tetelestai. All done. All done. All finished. Quit trying to improve on what Jesus perfected at Calvary. Amen? Let's stand to our feet.